behind the words that we just sang, declare all of creation, declaring your glory. And that is the rightful end, the joyful end, the only good end of all things is that you are glorified. For in that glory, our joy is fully expressed and known because you are the highest end of what is good and wise and holy. And in redemption, you are the fount of all grace and mercy and kindness. And we delight to acknowledge you in all of those ways. And so even as we open your word now, we pray that you would fuel our worship, that you would undergird and provide the foundation for our praise as we consider who you are, as we consider your message to your churches, as we consider your word, which is the revelation of yourself and of your glory. So be our teacher and Holy Spirit, we pray you fulfill your ministry of pointing our eyes to Christ. And we pray this in his matchless name. Amen. Well, open your Bibles. You should have a a crease in your Bibles by now to Revelation chapter 3. So go ahead and uh, open it up to Revelation chapter 3. We are, I'll give you one guess uh, which church we're in today. It is the church at Laodicea in verses 14 through 22. This morning we'll be looking at verses 20 through 22 and it is my intention to get all the way through verses, uh, all the way to the end of verse 22. So hopefully that's uh, what we'll do. But particularly, we're going to pick it up where we've been, uh, where we left off last time, and namely in verse 20. But let me begin this with this simple reminder that at the very heart of God's purpose in creation, and certainly God's purpose in redemption and the consummation of all things at the end of the age and the new heavens and the new earth, uh, essential to all of that work and essential to his purpose is the reality of relationship. God created us to be in relationship with himself, to share in his divine relationship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in bringing us into union with the Son, and in union with the Son, delighting in all of the glories and the love that exists in the divine Godhead. His very purpose in creation, according to Ephesians, was to make one new man, ultimately, a people both Jew and Gentile, united to Christ, forming the one body of Christ. And he says that was his eternal purpose in Ephesians 3.10, so that all of the angelic world could look at that event and that reality and marvel at his wisdom and at his glory. And so that is why there is something rather than nothing, as we say often, Because God wanted to redeem for himself a people in union with his Son by the Spirit to know his fellowship and to delight in his glory for all of eternity. At the very end of Revelation 21.7 is this magnificent statement, He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my Son. It is the culmination, the fulfillment of all to which we were saved. At the heart of sin, then, is a rejection of this relationship. It's a rejection of living in joyful obedience under His loving rule and His purposes in creation. It's a rejection of delighting in His glory and His ways as the most joyful and delightful end of our souls. Sin rejects all of that and goes another way and says that relationship is not important to me. What path I can pave for myself is the way that I will go. But this is also then at the heart of Christ's call to repentance to the church at Laodicea and to all. It's not a call merely to forgiveness. It's not a call merely to not go to hell. It's not a a call merely to not pay the eternal penalty of our sin. That Christ in the gospel and God in the gospel through Christ is calling us into a reconciled relationship. To no longer be at enmity with him but to be in harmony with him. To be his friend, to be his child, to be his obedient servant. To be one who enjoys the delights of his fellowship. And that is throughout scripture of all of the godly ones. That is the highest end of all things. Psalm 73. What did he say at the end of the psalm? My heart may fail. God is the strength of my heart. He says that his highest end is to be with God. And to know him. And the joy of fellowship with him. And that is in contrast to the wicked who reject that idea. Specifically he says this. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. 
My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. And that's the heart of a true saint, to know the nearness, the intimacy, and communion of God through Christ. And so the gospel is a call then to be reconciled to Christ and to have him as our treasure above all earthly treasures, to have him as our joy above all earthly joys, and to have him be gladly the sovereign Lord of all of our lives, our hopes, our present, and our future. And that's essentially what he's calling the church to here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Uh, let me begin by reading the last section here, verses 20 through 22. And then we'll consider it more closely. Beginning in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, in the broad outline of how we've been approaching this passage, this is fit, or I have it under that, the call to repentance. And this fits under it in that it is the end of that call to repentance, and namely restored fellowship, or to enter into fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, and he gives this invitation in the most remarkable language. In verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, we've already noted many times, I won't belabor this, that the church at Laodicea receives no commendation from Christ. It's all, it's all negative. And yet, in the midst of that, the church also receives one of the most tender and amazing calls of Christ to repentance. It is full of mercy and infinite mercy and grace. And so it is here. This is incredible mercy of the Lord, the one through whom all things were made, the one for whom all things exist, the one who is going to return in power and glory and execute justice and righteousness on all of the earth and destroy his enemies in an amazing display of power and his role as the rightful rule over all of creation and over all of men where he alone is glorified on that day. That one is the one whom here it says, or he says, stands at the door and knocks. It's an amazing contrast. This is the offended king seeking reconciliation with his rebellious subjects. The sovereign Lord seeking fellowship with those who have rejected him, those who have ignored him, those who have considered him insignificant. Here is inviting himself to relationship, to be restored, to offer himself and his fullness and his goodness to them. Now, I want to just say up front to kind of clear the air here, if, uh, in case this would be in anybody's mind, but it's at least a, a common connection that's made. Uh, some want to connect the Lord's words here to the statement of the young lovers in Song of Solomon, chap uh, particularly uh, chapter 5, verse 2, where it says, I was asleep. But my heart was awake, my, a voice, my beloved, was knocking, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is drenched with dew, and so forth. And I just want to say there is not a connection. Uh, these are two different contexts, two different motivations. The only thing that is similar is some of the words of knocking and a door. Uh, but that sometimes is how it's taken, but very, very, very rarely. Uh, it's also sometimes argued that this is an appeal to unbelievers outside of the church. It's, a, it's an evangelistic appeal. I grew up in a United Methodist church, and right in the lobby uh, there was a very famous picture, and you, you've seen it. Jesus, as we know, he actually was uh, very white with long flowing golden hair and a little halo around his face. Um, is standing at a door overgrown with some vines and other things, and he's knocking. And it's an evangelistic appeal, or a picture usually, where it's Jesus knocking on the heart of the unbeliever of the world, as it were, waiting for them to invite him in. Uh, that is not what he's referring to here. He's not knocking on the door of the hearts of all unbelievers. He is, in fact, addressing the church, the name, those who name his name. Those who are identified with him and yet outside of a genuine relationship with him. Again, it would be he's knocking at the door of those who are in a situation when they get to the end of their life and stand before him who were not truly repentant. Of He says, 
they say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do? And he says, I never knew you. And so there's, this is that church, that church who says, Lord, Lord, who says they know him, but they don't know him. They don't know him intimately. They don't know him in truth. And he here invites himself for them to come to a true knowledge of him, to truly enter into a genuine relationship with him. This is a message to the church and to the church at Laodicea and to all churches like them. And it is one he wants us to pay attention to. He says, behold, you're familiar with that word. In other words, listen, what I'm going to say requires particular attention and I want to draw particular attention to. And it is him standing at the door and knocking. Again, an incredible picture of him seeking admission into his own church. Him seeking admission and to be invited into his own church to the people who name his name. And he's saying, that may be the case, but right now I am outside of you and I need to come in. Right now I am outside of your worship. It is not something that I'm pleased with. I'm outside of you and your spiritual life that you claim to have. I need to enter in so that it could be truly genuine. Whatever their real experience or their experience was, it was not a real experience of worship in spirit and in truth. And these are things we will consider later down the road, particularly as we get into chapters 4 and 5. But consider this. This is one, Christ who is in the midst of the, his people, even warned of his rejection. Now he's standing outside and asking entrance. He just told them, I'm ready to spit you out of your mouth, my mouth. You are that distasteful to me. And yet, I'm also inviting you to come and know the true joy of fellowship. This is Christ in humility, as one noted in this scene. He comes to us strikingly in an attitude of, quote-unquote, unexpected and vulnerable condescension. This is the Lord of the heaven and earth who's saying, I stand at the door waiting for you to respond, for you to invite me in. Again, a humble invitation to those who shut him out. But this is, in fact, the heart of God throughout Scripture. God's consistent, untiring, and unending plea to those who reject him, to those who have no interest in him. Listen to the ways, if you fill this out a little bit, that God speaks to his people. This is Isaiah chapter 65. And he's speaking to his people, and you remember, we've noted it very briefly, the beginning of the letter the people who are always prone to their rejection and to reversing everything good into what is evil. And so those who, as he addresses them in chapter 5, who call light darkness and darkness light and so forth. And here he is saying to them, to that kind of people, to that people who have known his benefits but so often reject him, he says in verse 1, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here am I, to a nation which did not call on my name. Verse 2, I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following after their own thoughts, a people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in garden and burning incense on bricks and bricks and so forth. God is saying constantly you're rejecting, constantly you're turning away, constantly you're choosing something else beside me, constantly you're neglecting the covenant and obligations, and constantly I am crying out to you to turn to me. Constantly in mercy I am seeking you to move your heart so that you would see your ways and turn and truly enter in to the glories and the realities of the covenant. At the end of Second Chronicles he says this, in chapter 36, after he's already declared, after they've gone into their judgment, but before that he speaks of how often he tried to reconcile with them. Chapter 36, verse 15 of Second Chronicles, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Verse 16, But they continually mocked the messengers of God despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. God continually sought them by sending his prophets and his spokesmen. He continually reached out to them and they would have nothing of it. Listen to Acts 7. This ultimately finds 
its place in their rejection of the Messiah. This is Stephen's great sermon. After he recounts again and again in a brief overview of the history of Israel and the benefits and the privileges that Israel had as the covenant people of God and hearing the voice of God and having the blessing of his revelation and yet they continually rejected it. He says this in verse 39, Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him but repudiated him in their hearts and turned back to Egypt. That was the ministry of God through Moses and leading them out, leading them through the wilderness. And when he culminates the end of all of his evidence of their rejection of God, he says in verse 51, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. And yet, God continually reaches out. God continually reaches out. What did he do? He sent his apostle Paul, who was a primary as a ministry to the Gentiles. And what did he do, though, when he went into each town? He went first in the synagogue to reason with the Jews and to present Christ to them. They rejected him. He wiped the dust off his feet and then fulfilled the rest of his ministry. God was continually and is continually reaching out so often to his very own people who name his name. Not his people in truth, but his need people in name. And here he is speaking to the church in the similar vein. A church whom he says, you don't even know that you're wretched. You don't even know why I've come. You don't even know how blind and naked you are. And I'm standing at the door though. You and your haughtiness and your arrogance and your hubris have rejected me and your self-satisfaction. And here I am. Spreading out my hands using the language of Isaiah all day long to a disobedient people. That's the heart of God. That's his mercy. That's his kindness. And that's what he displays here. And I wonder how many in the church continue to resist this call who refuse to look honestly at the call to repentance, the testimony of our sin and the full glory and truth of who Christ is. I wonder how many, if you went into a church and preached the wretchedness of man and the miserable condition of man and the blindness of man and the nakedness of man outside of Christ and even the the reality of those who are in Christ needing to recognize how pervasive sin really is, how many, if you went into some of the large and representative churches of Christianity in our nation, would embrace that message? How many? I don't know. But I think it would seem not many. It would seem not many just by what is often promoted in these churches. But even more personally, I would ask this to you and of us. How many of you are hearing the convicting voice of Scripture or even maybe sometimes tempted or disciplined by God who sometimes feel the conviction of the Word and are yet outside of Christ? Is there any here, and that's of course between you and the Lord, who hear that call just like this, who hear his word, who hear movements of the spirit, who have moments of conviction and clarity, and then go on your way. And you're fine because you showed up at church. The messages don't do that. Christ stands at the door and he knocks and he waits for true repentance. Now, there's two ways that this is understood or could be understood here in verse 20, two general ways. One is, what is he inviting to precisely here? And what is, how is, he, what is his knocking? One way to see this is it's a, a present seeking of the Lord, a promise to the church and each individual with her to restore this broken fellowship with Christ in repentance. And that's to take it with verse 19. It is to say, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. And this, this call then is saying right now in the present, repent, because the very fact that I'm making this call through John, through the letter, that you are being called to open the door. Another way to take it is primarily as future, eschatological, a promise of enjoying fellowship with Christ and his kingdom. And that's when it's taken with verse 21, saying, I behold, I stand at the door at knock, and the one who opens is the one who overcomes, and I'll grant him in the future to sit down with me on my throne as I overcame and so forth and sat down with my father on his throne. The statement actually acts as a bridge between those two realities The present call to repent of the church who is outside of Christ and does not know the reality of his saving grace. 
The promise that repentance will bring ultimately the glories of the covenant to sit with Christ on his throne. The reality is that it really includes both of those ideas. It sits in verse 20 and between those two statements for a reason. It is a present call that says for anyone who hears his voice, they do not to be outside of him, but to enter into true fellowship with him. And at the same time, it is a recognition that those who enter into this fellowship have a foretaste of a glory that is going to be fully realized in the kingdom to come and in the future, in the distinct future when Christ returns. And that's probably, however, the, the primary direction of it. The idea of the door, we've noted it before when we talked about the church, uh, the message to Philadelphia, is very often in this context connected to the return of Christ, to his return. Let me just give you a few examples here. One is in Matthew chapter 24. He says this, a familiar passage in a parable, Matthew chapter 24, verse 33. After he gave the parable of the fig tree, he says, Now learn from the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. And the idea of the door imagery there, as it so often is, is the idea of nearness, of closeness, of immediacy. It's the idea of proximity, not so much in the physical sense, but in the fulfillment of what his word is and his purposes. It's near, it's at the door, and the door is, of course, something that gains or closes off access. And that picture includes then as well the idea to give access to, to open up to, to be submitted to, to believe. And he says here that as he puts that and connects that, however, to the individual, to the church at large, yes, but made up also of each individual's where he says, you have a responsibility both as the, as the professing church as a whole and anyone who is within that professing church who is now outside of Christ who turns to me will be a part of this blessing, will be a part of receiving the promise that I have. But it requires that each individual open. Look at what he says. I stand at the door of knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. So there is the humble invitation of Christ. And here is the hearer's responsibility. If anyone hears my voice. And again, this is a striking contrast to the voice John heard earlier in the vision. Remember when he saw that great vision? Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I heard behind me a voice like a, like a sound of a trumpet. It was an intimidating voice. It was a loud voice. It was a voice of majesty. And here it comes, however, in such humility and tenderness. There's a voice later that will come from heaven calling for bowls of judgment. But here it is the voice of the risen Christ seeking reconciliation with his people. And I just note that, it's helpful to note that contrast, lest we over-sentimentalize these kind of things and the, the offer of Christ. It is a mistake to take his humility as weakness or a lack of concern about sin, as so often he's presented as. No, he is the Lord. He is the Lord who will judge. He is the Holy Lord. He is the one who will call angels to execute justice on the earth. He is not weak. He is not sentimental. He is not superficial. It is not casual. It comes with profound depth and seriousness and immediacy, and yet... It is tender. It says Jesus, when he was on earth, when he invited and said, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. He said he is gentle and humble in heart. This is the voice of the good shepherd in John chapter 10. This is the same voice, however, that in Revelation 19 it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. Here he says, open up to me so that I don't come in judgment, but I can come in peace. And it requires a response. It is interesting here that he is leaving the option open to them to either open the door or keep it shut. Keep him out or to invite him in. It's a matter of which direction 
you're going to go. So he says, open the door. And the idea here is if anyone spiritually perceives and is compelled to respond to his message, don't put it off. Today, if you hear his voice, then today is the day to believe and enter into his mercy. He who ever believes in him will not be disappointed. So again, it's a call to enter into life and true fellowship with those identified to the church. How does his voice come? Let me suggest to you, here, it comes through his word, first of all, to the church. It comes through this letter that was to be sent to them. His voice comes through his word. We hear him speak in his word. We've noted that many times. It comes in, by extension to all of Scripture and, through, and it comes through the appeal of others. Whenever Christ's word is heard, whether it be shared in conversation, whether it be taught, whether it be preached, whether it be read, whatever it is, it is the voice of God that we are to respond to. It is Him speaking to us and that we are to respond to. Now with all the emotionalism that is so undiscerningly equated with the evidence of regeneration and a movement of the Spirit, with all the spiritual superficiality of the church at large, with all of the temptations of getting lost in an experience rather than in a true, repentant and living faith with Christ, an experience that more often rather than leads to a true knowledge of Christ deceives the dead heart and hides the reality of the depth of our sin and the true grace of repentance. That's just the reality. Many of these who would need to open the door and enter into true experience is not saying that they don't have some kind of emotional experience, that they don't have some kind of helpful connection as they see Jesus to help them. It's not to say they don't have that. He's saying, again, they don't have real relationship. This is incredibly important. I would give this illustration and just mention it briefly. How then would we take something like an offer here and discern in the context of his message to Laodicea the events that are happening at the, out in Osbury? Many of you have seen that on the campus there. How do we, how do we understand those events? Is that an opening of the door to Christ? Is that an opening of the door of Him who is the sovereign Lord who is seeking entrance to genuine and true fellowship? Well, ultimately, we can't say we're not God the Holy Spirit. So we don't know. The best is that you can evaluate by what it produces. And we certainly don't want to put God in a box nor automatically assume that God doesn't work in unusual ways and in significant ways. We don't want to do that because He does. And he has throughout the history of the church at different times. There's also been times where it's been a mix of good and bad, as it often is. And sometimes it's just been bad. So how are we to think about this, even in relation to the Lord's words here? Well, we need to be discerning and realize that a true work of the Spirit will always bear those marks. A true work of the Spirit will also be a return to a confidence in Scripture and the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. A true work of spirit will always exalt Christ and the glory of Christ in his atoning work, in his death, in his resurrection. A true work of the spirit will always be attendant with a life of repentance and faith and obedience and the fruit of repentance. That's what he produces. There's lots of counterfeits to that, which are tears, loud singing, all kinds of weepy, nice feelings. But that's not... That's not what the Spirit produces. He produces the life of Christ and the exaltation of God in Him. So, how would we evaluate it then? Well, while God is surely doing some good things in the lives of individuals as a whole, uh, it is by those who have been there and spent more time to evaluate it according to Scripture, and this is just at least the evaluation of others who, seemed, who spent time to actually go and visit and spend hours there watching, listening, and so forth. It seems to lack, however, overall, a clear focus on Christ and His atoning work. Listen to this. This is at least one evaluation. During the window we stayed, the music was repetitive and lacked discernment. It was rhythmic and emotional. The worship leader would invite us to do things like, quote-unquote, settle into grace, or, quote-unquote, splash in the love of Jesus which were confusing at best. 
Most concerning to me was the lack of the gospel. Two of the speakers said the word gospel as though they were communicating it, but it was absent. I wrote down some phrases that summarizes the gospel I heard. We know your life has been full of pain, but we're here to tell you Jesus loves you. Your story is full of pain and Jesus receives you as you are. Jesus is speaking healing to broken, bleeding, wounded hearts. There's a lot of talk about impartation and seeing the outpouring spread. If that was confession of sin and public repentance, that would be wonderful. However, not one of the testimonies we heard were about repentance. And sadly, none really mentioned Jesus, if at all. Again, it is the message of past trauma and Jesus' acceptance and healing. End quote. Is it real? Who knows? It's certainly, again, for individuals there, we would not want to deny that God is doing something good and may actually even save through that. But how are we to evaluate? Is it the kind of thing to get excited about? Well, Jesus says when he speaks to a church, when he brings revival, when he brings a new powerful presence of himself in the midst of his church and he revitalizes their life, it is going to be marked by this, a deep sense of wretchedness and miserable and how poor and blind and naked we are. It will be an embrace of Christ. It will be marked by a zealous repentance for him and an exaltation of his name and hungering for more than anything to enter into genuine, authentic fellowship that bears the marks of regeneration. That's all we can say. Inasmuch as that is evident, then we rejoice. Inasmuch as he doesn't say, I invite you to feel very close to me. That's not what he says. That should happen, but that's not what he says. That's not the focus. He doesn't say, I invite you to sing so many songs that you just have them in your mind all the time and feel very good about them. He calls to repentance and a zealousness and a zeal for the truth. So we'll let God sort out what is true and not, but at least as Christians we need to think discerningly about how we evaluate these things and how we evaluate our own hearts, of course, is the most important So, he does offer, however, the promise of restoration and the promise of reconciliation and the promise of fellowship. So he says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock and through my word I'm calling you to repentance. I'm calling you to a true understanding of reality and to enter in then through my death, through my resurrection, through understanding I and the Lamb whose blood was spilt to enter into true fellowship and it is indeed a glorious fellowship. And he says, I will come to him and I will dine with him and he with me. This is precious. It's the promise of fellowship. It's the great end of salvation, the nearness of Christ, which is the nearness of God. And notice first how personal it is. Look at what he says. I will come to him. And dine with him. I will come to him. Yes, Christ is speaking to the church, but he deals with each person individually. He doesn't deal with us as a group, as an impersonal number, or with cold detachment, but personally. He deals with us as each as individuals. And this actually is just a brief observation. is a testimony to the infinite glory of his divine nature. Who could deal with billions of people all at the same time, all with complete knowledge and authenticity, but one who was infinite in space, infinite in knowledge, infinite in his being, who could do that? Which, by the way, is why Mary doesn't hear the prayers of people and go ask Jesus to answer them. That would make her God. But only Jesus is the mediator and only Jesus is God. And here he says he hears and will deal with each one individually. And this is amazing. He loves us as the church. He loves us as his body. He loves us as the temple. And yet he intimately knows each one. Psalm 139. He understands our thoughts. He scrutinizes our path. He knows our lying down and rising up. The most mundane details of our life. Jesus said the hairs of your head are numbers. He calls all the stars by name in Isaiah chapter 40. He also calls his own by name. Jesus, who is the good shepherd, said he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. 
It's personal. The invitation, yes, is to the church as a whole, but it is an invitation to each individual in the church. It is personal. It's personal to you. It's personal to me. It's personal to you if you're outside of Christ that he will deal with you as an individual. You don't get lumped in with all of the saved. And people say that, but they live that way nonetheless. Some who are outside of Christ and who have that sense that they're outside, that they're here, but they're not truly in fellowship with Christ, and yet leave and don't consider their ways or ask God to show them the truth. That happens. He deals with us individually. We're not, that person isn't going to get lumped in and say, well, I'm going to be a part of that group that goes to heaven because I'm there. No, God will weed out the wheat from the tares, the good fish from the bad fish in his kingdom. But it is intimate. It is intimate. It is personal. It is intimate. For those he does call, he calls by name as he calls Zacchaeus out of the tree. He calls us by name. And he calls us into this most intimate fellowship. He says, I will sup with him or I will dine with him and he with me. The term used here for dine refers to the evening meal. There were different meals. You're probably familiar. This is the evening meal. And the evening meal was the most relaxed meal. It was the one where they had the most relaxed fellowship, companionship, intimacy, family time, and friends, and so on and so forth. It was the most unhurried time. And it allowed for the closest fellowship, conversation, and enjoyment of each other. That's the kind of meal, that's the kind of fellowship that he's bringing, uh, inviting us to. And it's brought out in that language. Look at what he says, with me, with me, with him. Or he says, with him, with me. In other words, this is the language of relationship. It's the kind of way that Jesus spoke about his relationship to the Father. Now, there are certain things that I know that you probably have this. You read in Scripture and you just, you go, okay. But it's just hard to wrap our mind around. It's just hard to fully comprehend. Let me show you some of those passages. This here, speaking of Jesus' relationship with the Father, he says, He who sent me, this is John 8, 29, is with me. He's near to me. Jesus was in fellowship with him. Jesus was in relationship with him as the Son. And he says, He has not left me alone. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He's with me. He's with me. When Jesus was going to be rejected by, or left by his disciples, he says, don't worry, in John 16, 32, I am not alone because the Father is with me. He's with me. He's in relationship with him. He was near to him. He knew fellowship with him. That's the kind of relationship that Jesus had with the Father. It's the kind of relationship that Jesus' believers, those his own children, or those who believe in Jesus who belong to him, share with Jesus and with that relationship he has with the Father. Here's one of those passages where you just, it's hard to wrap our mind around, but listen to this. I'm going to give you two. You're familiar with them, but listen to John 14, 23. He says, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode in him. There is a divine presence There's a divine dwelling of the Godhead through Christ by the Spirit in each individual believer as well as the church as a whole. Listen to the way he talks about it as a shepherd, as the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd in chapter 10, 14. And I know my own and my own know me. Listen, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. Did you catch what he said? My sheep, those who are genuinely believers, share with me a spiritual intimacy and nearness and closeness and relationship that is reflective of my relationship with the Father as the eternal Son incarnate and having the Spirit without measure. You, by extension, who belong to Him, share in that relationship through me. That's amazing. It's hard to wrap our mind around that. It's the longing of Jesus' heart then to be with his own, not to be separated from his church. We're going to celebrate that in the Lord's Supper. We proclaim his kingdom until he comes, until we're with him again. Listen to how he says it in verse 24. Father, I desire in his prayer to the Father that, I, that they also whom you have given to me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
Meditate on this. That if you belong to Christ, Christ is in heaven even now, longing for the day when you will be with him, where he's no longer separated from you. That's not only our longing for Christ, that's his longing for his church. That's his longing for you as an individual. Christ is not some distant, cruel autocrat in heaven just seeing if you make it. He is this gentle, loving shepherd and Lord, even through trial, even through the suffering that some of these would go through in his church through the ages. He is there with them in a deep relationship with them who has, is saying, yes, there's trial now. I underwent it as well. But for the joy set before me, I endured it. And my greatest longing of heart is that when you come through on the other side that I, through the trial I walk through you with, my greatest desire is that you be with me. That you be with me. That you be near me. I don't want to be apart from you. It's a few illustrations. I was thinking and going through this. What I thought of was, I thought of my marriage. If you have, many of you, uh, your spouses, there's, I want Trish with me all the time. I never want to be separated from her. Whenever, or even it could be something simple or she's been out of town for the last few days. But you recognize that. You, you, I don't ever want to not be with her. I want her to share everything with me. I want to always look to my side and be able to share life with her and to talk to her. And Jesus himself holds that up of the kind of relationship that we have in the covenant with him, that we are one flesh. There's many aspects to that, but one is the relational side. Lives bound and intertwined with each other, inexplicable from each other. That hopefully is what our marriages or all of ours are working towards. But it happens with friendships outside of that as well. It's the true relationship of any close companion, any brother and sister relationship that we have in Christ, a friendship and companionship. It's also illustrated when they were at the Last Supper and John laid his head on the breast of Jesus. He was with him. He was close to him. He wanted to be near him. He wanted to lean his head on his chest. Now, that's a little different than the way we do it. I don't suggest that, uh, to, to any, that we try that. Um, it'd be a little weird. But the point is, isn't that, the point is that at that time, that was an expression of closeness, nearness, companionship. He loved his Lord, and he says it was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus is inviting us into that. In a sense, saying, I want to come into this kind of relationship and this kind of fellowship with you, where in a similar sense, in the idea of it, you can lay your head on my breast and rest. You can know me with such closeness and such fullness. He says, I will come into him, the one who opens the door, and I will dine with him and he with me. And this is the longing of Christ's people, of true Christians, is to be with him. Now some see here an allusion to the Lord's table. And that's not likely that there's a direct allusion, but we can say this, that the kind of fellowship that's spoken of here. Now, let me just say, that word is used, for example, in 1 Corinthians 11 in reference to the Lord's table. But there, the idea is simply of the, the, the type of meal, not that it was the symbolic representation, the ordinance being proclaimed. There are two different things. And he uses it in both ways in that passage. But the idea here is this, though. It does, it does at least point to the kind of fellowship that God promises and that Christ promises to his people. And as a matter of fact, the very last... And the greatest demonstration of this is mentioned to us in Revelation 19 at that great feast of the Lamb. It says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready and it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then He said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And these are the true words of God. And that in part is what's pictured there. That's in part of the anticipation that we have when we come to the Lord's table of this great meeting again with Christ to be with Him forever. So there is an illusion there. It is the hope of His people. And so then the question again is, do you have this longing in your heart? Do you feed that longing in your heart if you have it? And we do that by meditating on His words here and on Him Do you desire intimate fellowship with Christ, grounded in the reality of your sin and His grace? Is His nearness your greatest good? Or 
Are there a thousand other things that seem more important? Well, in one sense, we as Christians can struggle with that. We can be distracted. We can find delight in other things. But where do those things leave us? Kind of empty, right? Kind of unsatisfied, kind of not full of joy, not full of the spirit that that produces psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with one another and that kind of thing. So this is a word to the church. This is a word to a church who is outside of him, who has a name that they are in Christ, and yet they are outside of Christ. It's a word to them to open up, as it were, to to invite Christ into the church in truth, in repentance, in self-contrition, in being humble and contrite of heart, embracing his true work in the gospel. He's speaking to the church and saying, open up to me as I truly am and stop playing the game. Stop being so silly and what you pass off as worship and experience true worship true delight true fellowship that's the main message but there is this reminder to us as well to those who have as it were invited him in to those who have as it were experienced that life-giving sovereign power of the spirit who has opened our eyes to see the glory of Christ in the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who has opened our eyes to his work and brought us into intimate fellowship where we want to maintain this kind of fellowship and we want to regularly have that intimate, slow, unhurried and real nearness of Christ in our experience. That's a battle. But here is the promise that if we seek him, this is what he offers himself. Notice what he says. I will come He with me. What is the great end of the gospel? God himself. God is the great end. He is the treasure. He is the reward. He is the blessing. He is the prize. He is the longing of the soul. He is the one that we want to be near. He is the one we want to lose ourselves in. He is the one and the only one who can give us peace that surpasses understanding. He is the only one who is our wisdom, who is our light, and who is our blessedness. He gives us himself. And we would ask, what more could he give? What would be greater than himself? What would be more wonderful? What would be more delightful? What would be more joyful? What would be more satisfying than himself? And the answer is nothing. And this is what he... And so you just... You know, as you read and you, you think of this, we, and I found myself even uh, particularly meditating on some of these things over these weeks, praying more for churches around us. Praying more for other churches. Not only for you and for myself, of course, and for those here who, I, who, who attend and are still outside and... You know, we just pray constantly for that. But praying for the churches, you just think and see constantly the silliness that gets passed off as worship. The foolishness that gets said from pulpits that have a camera in front of them and broadcast to millions. The absolute deception filled with, again, emotions aren't bad, but emotions are the byproduct of worship. They're not worship. They are what an embrace of the glory of God produces when we rightly see it. They are not the glory of God Himself. We need to lay hold of Christ as He is and worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so as we come to the table this morning, this is what is symbolized here. Not that fellowship with Christ is possible. Not that... That our union with, one, with him and our being members of one another is potential. It is to say it is reality. And this is the reminder. This is the reminder of things as they are. This is the reminder that he, though physically absent, is near by his spirit who indwells his church. It is the reminder that we come to him not with our works, not with our goodness, not even we come to him with who we actually are, which are sinners in need of grace constantly. 
We come to him with all the trials that may be going on with your life, all the failures to walk with him as you know that you should, all of the sins that you're battling with, but with the confident hope that Christ is our righteousness, that his spirit indwells us, that one day there will be an end to the battle, but until that end, he is in us working all things together for good, that he is in us working out his will and his good pleasure in us, and that there is hope. We come to him who invites us into this intimate fellowship. And the table is his own reminder to say, I'm inviting you continually to come, continually to feast, continually to enjoy the redemption that I have provided for you. So we come not with our sin, ready to forsake it, but we come knowing that he accepts everyone. He has accepted us, and he is coming for us who have trusted in him and made him our dreams, treasure, and joy. So as we men come to uh, give us the elements, take some time to pray. Let me pray for us, and then you take some time to pray silently and fellowship with the Lord. Father, we thank you for mercy and for grace. We who are here this morning, who know you in truth, who have experienced that sovereign grace of opening our eyes to see Christ, that sovereign gift of repentant faith. We who have, who have known you and, and whom you have made Christ known to us, we know what it's like to walk the side of heaven and to groan, but to keep our eyes on him who is our righteousness. We know the joy and the hope that there is in those moments when we have the clearest sight of who you are and who we are with you and in you. And I pray now as we come to the table that you would remind us afresh of these glories of the gospel, of what it means to have the, your presence in us, your nearness in us, to remind us of the glory that you long for us to be with you and these very elements that you give are to point our eyes back up to the things above where you are knowing that one day you're going to come and take us we will be in resurrected bodies. We will be without sin. We will be in your presence. We will with new eyes see glories that we couldn't even fathom if you were to tell us now. We will. So keep us hopeful and keep our eyes fixed on those things that we might walk with you and be encouraged to walk with you in obedience and hope. And so minister now, we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.